We're clear over in Hebrews chapter 2. Moving right along. And we'll finish up Hebrews 2 tonight. Let's start out in verse 5. You guys are taking notes. This is uh, what I tell this is God made personal through Jesus Christ. God made personal through Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you guys get on this thing where you, you start jumping around on YouTube and, and all of a sudden you're like, why in the world am I on this weird disease that I'm watching right now? So anyways, that was my journey. Shelly and I watched some of those medical things and uh, we came across this one story of this, this couple that had two kids with, and I'm going to try to say the name of this disease, Harlequin ichthyosis, which is where your skin grows in 12 hours, it grows as much skin as another human would grow in 14 days. So it's horrific in how it does it. And the kids are always peeling. They always, they, the, the mom has to give them a bath in the morning and the after, in the evening and scrub them to get all the skin off. So it's painful. Um, it restricts. It's, it's because it's the biggest organ on the, in the human. It, 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 it deals a lot with your water and keeping it in or, or you know letting it out. And so... It's disastrous. It, it is so sad to see what was going on. But anyways, the, the work that the mom has to and the dad has to put into this child is unbelievable. I mean, it's just constant. Every bit of the day, they're doing something for this child. And so in the morning, they're scrubbing them. They have to get up at one of them. It was 4.30 in the morning, and they start the process of scrubbing them. Then they have to put cream over their whole body. And then they get to go to school and, and do different things. And they got to cream up, I don't know how many times, four or five times during the day as well, just to keep it. And then at night, they do it again. And the reason for that is to keep infection out. Most of these kids don't even make it to, I don't remember what the age was, what, five is what usually the time? Well, their daughter's now 18. And, and, and it's because of this process that this mom is invested into her child. I mean, they have to have laundry service come in because all their sheets and everything are all caked in the cream. I mean, they, it's crazy what they have to go through. And the thing that I kept seeing is that these people would not be the people they are this couple without those kids. I mean, the things that they've endured, are, are their character is so much more than just a regular person with some you know, healthy children like us. And I can't imagine having to pour that much attention into my child every single day. And the worst thing is, is that this is like one in a million that a kid has this disease. So there's nobody else that's even like that. Now, in the UK, there's, two, there's four kids that have it. And what happened was that this family decided they're going to have another kid, and it was one in four chances that they'd have another one with the same disease, and they did. So they had two children like that. There's another couple, they did the same thing, and they have two children. That's the only two people in all of the UK that have this disease. So it's a very rare thing. And the, and the whole point of that is, you know so many times when we go through those trials and everything, it's so nice to come across somebody else that's gone through that as well. It's, it's a relief, it's a comfort to be able to talk to them. I mean, one that hits home for me is, is knowing how my parents had to deal with my brother's death. There are so many people that come along and they try to help and they'd say, I know how you feel, was one of the things. And they were trying to be generous. I mean, it was a, it was a talk they were really trying to help out. And then they would talk about maybe one of the relatives passing away or their grandma. And, and it's very hard for my parents because it's like, no, <laughs> you have no idea what I'm going through. Um, I know it's, it's sad that you lost that relative, but to lose your child is a whole different level. And, and the things that were said to them, the things that they had to go through, my mom, I mean, they're very amazing people, not just in what they do, but what they did. I mean, my parents had a foster home at the same time. They had two other boys that they were raising while my brother was going through this for a year and a half in the hospital, and then he passed away when he was five. 
And having to go through that process, my mom, two weeks later, went into the very same hospital room that my brother passed away in to go and minister to a lady that was losing her child. And just that network that my mom had of these people and having this commonness of, you know, this is probably the worst thing you can experience here in this world is losing your child like that, you know, early. But there's a hope. And just that whole comfort that comes with people having things that they've gone through and knowing, you know what, that person has gone through the same thing as me and that brings me comfort because I can see they've made it through it and now they're giving me counsel on how they've made it through that. That Jesus Christ really is true and those promises he makes does help you get through it. Now, when we look at Hebrews and you, you apply that to God, there gets this interesting little thing, and I was mulling it over and really meditating on it because it was throwing me for a loop. And just what it talks about in these scriptures and what we're going to go through tonight in Jesus' humanity and how God has been made personal to us through his humanity, it blows my mind because God, of course, is not man. We all know that as far as God the Father, but Jesus Christ becoming man so that, and we'll read this later, he becomes merciful to us and he becomes faithful to us as our high priest. And the things that he will understand are suffering. He understands our temptation because he went through it. Now, here's the thing that threw me for a loop is that you look at God and he knows. He knows all things, of course. But to experience it is still a different thing. So God, before Jesus Christ came down as man, never got to experience being a man and experiencing all those things that he knew but there was this understanding that came with Jesus Christ, which should just blow your mind because it's like, wow. And then you get to see that God the Father and what he did for us, and that we could say, God, you don't have any idea what I'm going through. You don't know the things I'm going through. Yes, you know all things, but to understand and to live out what I've gone through, I don't think you can relate with me. And you look at the love of God and what he did so that he can say, yes, I know exactly how you feel. I've gone through those hard times as well. And that comfort that he gets to bring us because he's gone through everything. It says that in the very last of this, this part of this chapter, that he's gone through it all. He's been faced with every temptation that we have. And that's where he can bring in that comfort and say, no, I understand. Not only do I know, but I understand what you're going through. And it's like, oh, wow. That's a loving father, isn't it? I mean, God of the universe coming and doing that for us. So let's go and let's look at this now. The different things and getting to show and, and Jesus coming down and he's taking that physical body that he might bring the Father's plan to fruition, right? Jesus has now experienced what it is to be man in every way. God has experienced what it is to be man in every way. That's... That's why it blew my mind. <laughs> the writer of Hebrews shows us four different things that Jesus and his humanity accomplished. Or you could say just even answered. You know, why is Jesus, why did he have to come and be, be human? Why did he have to put on that flesh? And so in this section, it's so neat because it, it really opens up our eyes to see why did Jesus have to become man? And if you look at the, from the Jewish perspective, for God to become man would be a horrible, horrible, just weakening point. You wouldn't even look at God as anything other, you couldn't. In your mind, you're like, this Jehovah God, like he parted the sea for us. He did a wonderful, awesome things. He's, he's been, you know, a God that's promised what, and fallen through with what he promised. And now you're going to tell me that he's a man. Like, <laughs> how could you do that to God? 
And so the writer of Hebrews, when he's talking to these guys, he really wants them to understand that Jesus had to do this so that he could fulfill different things that only could be fulfilled if he became man. And so there's going to be four of them that we're going to go through tonight and just answering that question of why did Jesus have to come as a man? And it's neat what he accomplished. And when you look at it, I hope you guys walk away from it tonight just seeing the love of the Father in this whole deal. That what Jesus had to go through was unbelievable for us. And that love that was just poured out on us as being the created. You know, it's an awesome deal. So let's go ahead and get into it. In verses 5 through 9, I'll go ahead and read those. It says, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels, But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all subjection under him, he left nothing that is put under him that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. In verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And Lord, we really want to understand what your scripture is saying, and I really ask that you just speak through me, Lord, and just the things that have been going through my head, Lord, I want it to be from you and not just an opinion or a thought. But Lord, you teach us just how gracious you are how merciful and faithful to your promises you are to us, Lord. And we want to glorify you as we go through this study, Lord. We want to come out of this and just see how awesome of a God and loving God you are and to get to understand a little bit more about you, just as your word asks us. And and as we walk through your word, we get to do that, Lord. I thank you for being such a personal God to us and that we do get to understand you. You're not far off, Lord, and that you hear us. And Lord, with so many things that we don't deserve, but you've given your son, and now we get to walk in him, Lord. And so we just thank you for that. We thank you for the honor and the glory that you restored to us through your son, Lord. And we praise you. Amen. All right, so the first one is Jesus regained man's lost dominion. Jesus regained man's lost dominion. Let's go over to Psalms 8, and that's where this verse comes out of that he clarifies and he uses to make this argument or to show Jesus redeeming that dominion in Psalms chapter 8 is where you'll find it. And this is a psalm of David, and David, you guys might have the title there, it says, The Glory of the Lord in Creation. He's just exalting God, and he's really questioning, what in the world does man have to do with anything? Why have you even looked down on him? So as we read through, I just want to go through all of Psalms, and I know that over here, Hebrews gives a little part, but let's read that whole Psalms in Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. 
David is just talking about how awesome it is, but he was beside himself that God would give man dominion and glory and crowning him. What is man? Who is man that you would even listen to him, that you would visit him? When you look at God Almighty that's created all things, you really do. And I know you guys, that one, uh, what is that video that we watched, Sean? The God of Wonders. Watching that, I mean, it really puts you in your place. And you're like, okay, I am very small and, and, you know, there's not much to it. Who is God or who are we to have God come and visit us? It's an awesome thing to have him come and, and deal with us. And as we go on to, to the rest of Hebrews to get to see that not only does he just visit us, but what he's done for us is, is it's unbelievable. It's something that I, you can't even put into words because it's something that I know I would never do. And I don't think that many of us would do what he's done. If you do, hey, you guys are awesome. You're walking with Jesus. <laughs> now, dominion, that word that's used there, it's a word, and this is going to get very interesting, and I hope that I make it very clear, but dominion in Hebrew is to gain control, to govern, to charge, or to have authority over. Okay. Now, when you look at it and saying that with the dominion and, and how man has had it, it's interesting because man had the authority over all of creation. There was a dominion, there was a governing that happened. Something that man no longer has. Man does not govern nature anymore. And it's really interesting because we don't have very many scriptures that make it very clear on what it looked like before. But I find it very interesting when Eve went and spoke to a snake and that wasn't an odd thing. She just had a conversation with it. And you have to wonder that dominion over the animals, was there a completely a different relationship that was there? Some of the things that we get to see with Jesus and what he did, and we'll get into some of the verses later, but just understanding what that dominion. So I just want to throw that out there, and we're going to go over it a little bit more in just a second. But first, what he talks about in being, we are created a little lower than the angels. However, we have been given higher privileges than what they have. So we're created lower. Remember, the whole context of this first part of the chapter one was talking about how Jesus is more than the angels. And so if you say that he's more than the angels, but then you go back and say that he became a man, you're kind of, you're mixing up the mind, especially the Jewish mind, because it's like, no, 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 he got it reversed. And so he wants to reset it and say, you know, that we are lower than the angels, and he's placing what man is, but we have been crowned with glory and honor. We've been given privilege over them. And what it sets up with man, and the reason he's doing this is because he wants to show what man had, but then in verse 8, the very end of it, and that's where we end up seeing the dominion lost. We don't see things that are under us anymore, and it says in that very verse, last verse, uh, sentence of verse 8 says, but now we do not yet see all things put under him, speaking of man. And don't get this confused. When you guys go through verses 6 through 8, the hymn that it's spoken of, that's talking about man. It's not talking about Jesus Christ. Some people mix that up and put Jesus in that place. It's not talking about that. Because Jesus Christ comes in uh, later in, in verse 9. It's talking about man. So all of this has been put under man, the subjection and everything, but now it says, but now we do not yet see all things that are put under him. We don't ex exercise dominion over creation. We have no control over the fish or the fowl or the animals. And it's interesting because when you look and you study out that word dominion, it really looks like there was control, there was governing over the animals. 
We find it even hard ourselves now to control ourselves, right? I mean, let alone other things that are outside of us. Man's always trying to control it. You guys know that even in China, they've developed some kind of a weapon that they use to try to control the weather, you know, so that they can kind of alter how maybe the, the war field will look like. Or They'll shoot different particles up into it to either break up the clouds or to gather the clouds together. And it's really interesting that they have that technology. But as you watch what just happened to Taiwan or what's happening right now, man has absolutely no control over nature. And it's evident over and over again. And it even talks in Revelation how it's going to get worse, right? That the beasts are going to start just going crazy and going after man. And it's interesting, the very first, before the fall, that it, it, it's, everybody was together, and even it promises that that's how it's going to return to when Jesus comes back, that the lion's going to lay down with the lamb. So the problem is, is that we've lost it, and now the solution is in verse 9. And you guys know that I love when it uses that word in there, and it says, but we see Jesus, because there's always usually a problem or some sad story right before that or some failure of man, but then God, it always says, or but then Jesus. And so the whole focus and being in that and showing what man had, but now we don't see all things put under man, but we see in Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Speaking, okay, now Jesus, man, becoming man, he's been put a little bit lower than the angels, right? Jesus is coming back to take that dominion back. And when you guys go through Scripture, you will see that Jesus, he exercised dominion over nature, didn't he? Fish. Look at that one. I have three different verses that you guys can look up. Matthew 17, 24 through 27, and that's where it talks about right when he's calling them and he's calling them to uh, be the 12, right? And he says, that, you know, how you guys been fishing? They said, it's been a horrible night. And he goes, well, cast your net over, and, and they do, and they can hardly even pull it up. They have to call for the other guys on the shore to get their boats out there to haul these fish in there. There's dominion over the fish right there. Another one, remember when they're asking him to pay taxes? What happened with that story? With the fish? He's like, hey, go cast the hook out there. The first fish you get, open its mouth. He'll hook you up. You know, you can pay your tax. I mean, where's that fish at? <laughs> that one is in Luke 5, 1 through 11. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I think I have them reversed. Sorry. The Matthew 17 was the coin fish. The Luke 5 was the, the nets full. And then another time in John 21, 1 through 11, um, it's another time at the very end of the ministry or getting close to it where Jesus tells them, or actually it's when he comes back and the guys are having a hard time fishing again, and he tells them, throw it on the other side of the boat, and they can't even get it back in the boat. And uh, then they you know, are all excited because it's Jesus that they see. So there's three different times that you see him over the, the fish. And then over the fowl, or over the birds, in Luke 22, 34 and, th- and 60, is where he promises Peter that he'll deny him three times, and then he'll know it because the rooster will crow, right? Well, if you read in verse 60 of 22, it says that he wasn't even finished saying his sentence, and the rooster crowed. I mean, that's divine timing, if you want to look at it that way. There was control that was there. There was dominion. Another part in Mark, and this one's a harder one to make an argument for, but it's an interesting verse there. In Mark 1, verse 12 and 13, it says that he was in the wilderness. It's when he goes out for the 40 days, and he says that he was with the wild beasts. And you can take that wherever you want to go, but it says he was with them. So well, however that was working out, I don't know. That's all that it gives us in the Scripture. And then Ephesians, if you guys want to turn over to that one, Ephesians, this is one that we already went through, but just to refresh, refresh our memory, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Ephesians 1, 20. 
to the end of the chapter, it says, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is the body and the fullness of him who fills all in all. And just showing that Jesus has been put all, that dominion's been reclaimed through Jesus Christ. That was an important thing because in the very beginning, that's what man was given as man's responsibility was to have that subjection over all of creation. That was our job. And unfortunately, we gave it up because of sin. And so here Jesus is. He has to become human to regain that. He has to be flesh to regain that dominion over that. And that one might not seem like a big deal because it's like, well, but this is God's creation we're talking about. This is one of our biggest roles. This is our biggest responsibility that God gave us on this earth. And so Jesus, of course, has to reclaim that to show that he is and prove that he is. Now, the second one. The second one is that his humanity enabled him to bring us to glory. His humanity enabled him to bring us to glory. And this is in verses 10 through 13. So I'm going to go back over to Hebrews Verses 10 through 13, it says, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom all are, thi- all, are all things to bring many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. Uh, in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Now, with this and in bringing us to glory. Now, there's some scripture in here that is it's hard to mull over. I mean, it took a little bit to go over it. So I hope I present it to you guys and you can understand what I'm saying. We'll see. So in verse 10, let's start tearing that one apart. Now, in this verse, it's talking about God the Father at first. For it was fitting for him. Okay, talking about God the Father. For whom are all things and by whom are all things. So we could say God's power and his dominion over all things, right? Looking at God the Father. And then it says, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. And the captain would be who? Jesus Christ, right? So just to define those, and it says that there would be those that believe, right? We have to define those things so you don't get mixed up or I don't get mixed up. And so knowing that God the Father is speaking of him, the captain is Jesus Christ, and of their salvation would be those that believe. Now, this is where it gets interesting because some people want to say that Jesus Christ had to be made perfect. Because isn't that what it says there? Isn't that what you would read? To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings? That's, a, that's one of those verses that people were like, there you go. See, your Bible, you can't trust it. It's all messed up. Now, Jesus being the captain of our salvation. Now, captain sometimes can be looking as a pilgrim, or not as a pilgrim, as a pioneer. Sorry, the other P word. As a pioneer <laughs> that goes forward and blazes that trail. Okay, that's one way that I've heard this described and saying that, you know, he's blazing the trail of salvation and you know, perfect through the sufferings. But being the captain of our salvation, I see it as being the commander, that, that one that's there, the one that's steering the ship, the one that's guiding the one that leads us into salvation, right? To make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
when you look at this, you really have to see that God we know, and we know Jesus Christ was perfect, right? He wasn't made perfect. But here's what it's talking about in being made perfect. It was that Jesus was perfect, and we know and we believe, but he needed to be proved. And it was through his suffering. Because man would not understand Jesus to be perfect if he wasn't tested, right? How could you know if something is perfect without a test there? And you guys know the classic thing of, of figuring out if a $100 bill is right. If it's, if it's the real deal, if it's the perfect one, is that you have to have a counterfeit there to go up against and see. You, or you have to even have another perfect one to see if everything lines up with that one. And so Jesus, and when it's saying that he's to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering, all it is is it's to pre- present. It's to show that Jesus Christ is perfect. And the way that that was done is through the suffering. And now here's where I'm going to clarify that and go and give support for what I'm saying. Go over to Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5, verse 8. And it says, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's the testing that I'm talking about. You wouldn't have known that there's complete obedience and perfection there if it wasn't ever tested. And so the words that are used there is made perfect. It isn't that some outside source came and took a defaulted or or something that was of error and made it perfect. It was already perfect, and it was proven perfect through the obedience. And so when you look at that, they can't make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It was because of Jesus having to go through the cross. And we know when he was in the garden that he asked the Father, if there's any other way that this can happen, let's do that. And the Father was like, no. We need to keep going because, of course, it was the perfect way. And in that obedience and Jesus knowing exactly what he was going to have to suffer and what he was going to have to put on himself, because of that obedience, we see Jesus Christ as being 100% perfect, right? We get to see as humans and we know clearly and believe that he was perfect and is perfect. And so he's presented perfect to us through man, through the obedience by the things which he suffered, like it said over there in chapter 5. In verse 11, it moves on and it says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. This is speaking of Jesus, for both he who sanctifies. So, because he has become man, he can now set apart those who believe, set apart being sanctified. He can sanctify or set apart those who believe who are being set apart, or who are being made holy. And that gets a little tricky there, which I'm so happy he has these verses in there. He also uses over there in... in, uh, Let me see if I can find it real quick. In chapter 10, he also says, By that... And this is verse 10, uh, 10 of chapter 10. It says, By that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Being sanctified, we've been set apart, made holy at that time. And then down a little bit further in verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, that process of sanctification. Hebrews, these are great verses to have in there because this completely robs people that want to say that you are now perfect in Jesus Christ, therefore you should never sin, and if you do sin, that means you really don't believe and you're not a believer and you're going to hell. 
They want to look at it as that once you cross that line, there's absolutely not going to be any sin in your life. But the whole thing is, is that, you know what? Praise God because we're sanctified. In, the, in the God the Father's eyes, we're sanctified through his Son because Jesus Christ has conquered death. And we'll get into that in a second. But he sees Jesus, and we get entered in through Jesus' name. But this process that we're still on this earth, we get to be sanctified. There's a process of being set aside. There's a process of being made holy. And praise God for that too, right? So it's not this whole thing of, okay, I'm still sinning in my life. I guess I don't really believe I'm doomed for hell. I can't get this thing right. Guys, do not lose hope. You're being sanctified. It's a process that's going to happen. And it's very clear here in Hebrews in a couple different places, and that's what it says. So back to how Jesus fits in and being the man and, and being that, having that humanity and how that fits in there is that because of what he did and because of him coming as a man, he set, was set apart through his obedience. And that first being the captain of our salvation, being perfect, now he has the position to sanctify, to set apart, right? And being man that had to take place so that he could be right there and already going through all those testings and all, and proven to be perfect so that he can take man and he can introduce him. And you guys can go through, and you want to clarify this, we don't have time tonight to go through it, but Romans 5, hopefully, it might confuse you a little bit more, but hopefully it clarifies, it goes through and talks about Adam and what we receive through Adam, and then what we get to receive through Jesus Christ. And it's a really neat picture that goes back and forth on those two. So if you guys want to, Romans 5 is a great place to go and study this out more. So we've been made now one with him, and we're brought in as the title of brethren to the most holy. To the most holy. To Jesus Christ, now we're called brethren. In verse 12, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. In verse 11, it says that he is not ashamed to call them brethren. The reason he's not ashamed is because what's done through him now is taking care of what was owed the debt's been paid. There is no shame anymore. Don't let the enemy shame you guys. You guys have your Savior, and if he's not ashamed to call you brethren, don't you dare sit there and be ashamed of what you're going through and saying, you know what? This is my fault. I, I can't believe God loves me. I'm such a loser. Why keep going forward with him? Because I'm a failure to him. I don't represent what a Christian should be. I don't represent what he did on the cross for me. It's like I forget all the time. Don't let the enemy rob you guys with all those little things he throws in your head and those thoughts. If Jesus Christ right here is saying, and it's saying that he's not ashamed to call you guys brethren, he's not ashamed to call you family. And praise God for that, right? And then it even goes further, and he says that we're children, not just brethren, not brothers, but we're his children. There's that care that takes there. We have these awesome titles that he's given us that we get to be paired up with the most holy. Now, the writer supports this, referring to, if you guys are wondering, in verse 12, he's going over to Psalms 22. 22. And that's where he pulls out this, this, this verse from. And he supports each one of these because it's very clear and he needs to support each one of these so that he can show these Hebrew believers or non-believers that this is true. This is from the scriptures that he's speaking. In verse 13, so we also have this title of his children that means we have that privilege and that protection that he provides, right? Now on to three, because I am running out of time. On to three, so he took the enemy's power by his humanity. He took the... 
enemy's power by his humanity, which is a really interesting one. You're like, wow, how does that work out? I mean, it's God Almighty. Why couldn't he just strip Satan of his power? Because you have to remember that Satan is an accuser, isn't he? So what do you think he's accusing? Who's he going to accuse? He's going to talk to God the Father and accuse us as being his children, right? He's like that one brother or sister in the family that always ratted you out or tattletale. <laughs> a little bit worse. But he's there to accuse and say, look at they're deserving of death. Look what they've done. They deserve it. They hate you. Just think of all the evil things that he says. And God knows he's a liar. But God also knows and he sees our life, but he gets to see Jesus Christ and what he did in his humanity. So in verse 14, let's go ahead and read 14 through 16. It says, And as much then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to the angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Interesting verses right there. There's very awesome insight that we wouldn't have if Hebrews didn't exist and what was said there. So breaking it down in verse 14. What it's saying that we've partaken, all it's talking about in being in the flesh and blood is that what we consist of is our humanity. It's talking about that flesh and blood. Okay, so speaking of as much as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, speaking that we are flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. So Jesus being man, that's what all it's saying is that he also was flesh and blood. And because he was flesh and blood, that through the death he might destroy him who had power over death, that is, the devil. Now, my question right away was, what? Satan has power over death, or he did? I thought God did. And I went and like looked at some verses there, and of course, we can look at Deuteronomy. We can go Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, 39. It talks about God being over death, that he will kill and have live whoever he wants, is what that verse talks about. We know that God has the ultimate say in death. Matthew 10, 28 is another verse, if you guys want to look it up. It also speaks of God had an authority over death. Revelation 1, 18 is another one. So there's verses of support. Of course, God is the one that's the authority over death. Satan can only do what he has permission to do. And we know that from Job 1, verse 12, and also Job 2, verse 6. It was both showing that Satan has to go before God the Father to ask for permission. Now, the thing is, is that we did see Satan take lives, didn't we? I mean, what about Job's family? Remember that? All the sons and servants, he took them all. They all experienced death because of the enemy, because of Satan. And even in John 8, verse 44, it says that Satan is a murderer. And it says he's even a murderer from the very beginning. That he killed from the very beginning. And that he was a sinner. In 1 John 3, 8, it says that Satan was also a sinner from the beginning. And we know, and here's where it becomes clearer on what it's talking about, that he had power over death because... The works of the devil always lead to death. That was his biggest tool. That's where he wanted to see man go because he knew there was no hope for man in death. That's why it was such a key thing to him. Although he didn't have supreme authority in talking about boom, boom, death's here, death's there. 
you know, and shooting his finger at everybody. It was talking about the devices that he used and speaking of him being that murderer from the very beginning. I mean, think about the fall and the deception that he took Eve and Adam through. He brought death in because of the deception. Now, he didn't actually act it out and do that. Well, definitely, we take credit for that, being humans. But look at all of his devices. That's where he wants to see man end up. Now, if that's his ultimate tool, that's his, that's his powerful sword, if you want to look at it, as death, because that's where he can take man, and the man was without hope and death. Stripped of everything, right? Stripped of everything that God had for them, as it would seem. And then what it's talking about here in verse 14 is it's not saying that he destroyed him because we know Satan is active today. It's talking about disarming. That word destroy would be better said that it's, uh, let me see if I can find the notes on it real quick. No, I can't. (laughs) But it's talking about disarming him or taking away from what he had, that, that power that he had there. Because if you take death away from him, what can he do to man? And then we go on into the verse to get a little bit more clarity in verse 15, and it says, and release those who through the fear of death were all in their lifetime subject to bondage. That's what he'd put them in. So they were in a prison of fear. And that's why you see verses in the Bible that say, hey, eat, drink, be merry, because what? Tomorrow you might die. So the fear of death is saying that death will strip you of everything. So you might as well have as much fun as you can today. Live it up today. Right? You deserve it. So you better do your best and have as much fun as you can today. Well, what does that mentality lead us to? Self, right? And self loves sin. It'll just keep going in there. And then what you have is you have death, right? It's just that whole thing that just keeps falling down. And so at the very last, and it's saying releasing those that through the fear of death were all in their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, I want to know, you guys, how many of you guys are afraid to die? Do you guys have a fear of death? I mean, I honestly, I think through things, and I think, because I, I, I told God a long time ago, I said, if you ever want me to go to the Arab countries, you're going to have to take my whole family from me, because there's no way I'm taking a bunch of girls over there. I couldn't watch what they'd have to go through and the evil things that might happen to them. So if you ever call me to there, you have to take them all. And I've thought about that. What would that be like? And I just think, you know what? This life is so temporal that when we're in eternity and we look back at this life, it's a bleep. When you put it on the line, if there wasn't a line, it's infinity, so you can't really put it on line. But it would be this tiny little pencil mark on that line. It's nothing, but it is everything and how we deal in this life, isn't it? But to look at and experience death when we know Jesus Christ and then we look at death, it should be a thing of awesomeness, excitement, you know, getting to be praising God because of where we get to go now. Because death no longer, we don't fear it. Unfortunately, for those that don't know Jesus Christ, there should be a fear there. There should be a deep fear there. But in Jesus Christ, what's happened is he's taken that weapon away from Satan, and he's given us this freedom now. No longer to fear death. And in verse 16, For indeed he does not give aid to the angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And this is an interesting one because... This verse, you have to really go through it, and it's, it's interesting. If you say give aid, well, you could say, well, okay, he's given salvation to the angels. He's given it, not to the angels, he's given it to man. Um, when it talks about it, 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 the verse is there in some of the translations. It says the take on the nature of. So when you read it, verse 16, for indeed he does not take the nature, take on the nature of angels, but he does take on the nature of the seed of Abraham. I think that's more consistent in context of what it's talking about here. 
rather than just jumping over and saying that, you know, he's given salvation not to the angels but to man. Because the next verse in 17, it says, Therefore, in all things he has been made to be like his brethren. And that makes it more consistent when you're saying that he's taken on the nature. Now, it's still relevant because the thing is, Jesus did not take on the nature of the angels to redeem the demons and Satan. But he did that for us. He did that for the seed of Abraham. You could argue and say the seed of Abraham would be only those Jews, but if you guys want to counter that, you can go over to Galatians or Romans, which puts us as the seed of Abraham through faith, right? If you guys want a verse, it's Galatians 3.7. It says right there that we are sons of Abraham as well through faith. So speaking of us as well, not just to the Israelites, but also to us. And he's taken on that nature. Now, there's a lot of, we don't have scripture that says, this is why God didn't do it for the angels. My own thought, for whatever it's worth, is that because the angels have seen God face to face, they've been in his presence, they've been there glorifying God, they know exactly what God's all about. They've seen it. They've been there. They've seen his working, they've seen his redemption, they've seen all these things that have been accomplished through his son. And even before that took place, they knew what they're stepping out of. And I just wonder if that's the reason that redemption has not been offered to them, because they knew exactly what they're stepping out of. And not to say that man has gotten redemption because man is ignorant to it, right? That's just a thought. I have no idea. The scriptures don't make it clear on why he didn't redeem the angels. I'm sure it's his perfect way, so we'll just leave it there. But he did come, and he gave aid to us, or he took on the nature of us in the seed of Abraham. The last one, number four, is that he's merciful and faithful high priest because of his humanity. In verses 17 and 18, it says, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In verse 18, For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. That's a neat one right there. That's what we were talking about the very first to start it out and just seeing what Jesus Christ is. So verse 17, therefore in all things he had become, he had been made to be like his brethren. So in all things, guys, he was made to be like us. In all things. Meaning that Jesus Christ had the choice of being able to go after and covet something or to murder a man or to take advantage of somebody. Christ had that opportunity in all of those things to be able to do that. And it's interesting that he was able to because then he can see what temptation we go through, like what it says in that other verse in verse 18. So he's made like his brethren. He's made in all things he was like us. He might be, and this is the reason for it, this is why his humanity is so that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. So he might go before God with his blood and put it on that mercy seat and be merciful towards us and faithful to his promises because of the humanity, because of what he had to go through. And see, now an angel couldn't do this because an angel doesn't have flesh and blood, right? From the very beginning, that was required of us so that the sins could be covered. And we're going to go into all this later on. I don't want to go too deep into it. We're going to do the high priest. is over in verses, or chapters 4 and 5. We're going to really get into the high priest and what that means. We're going to go into the sanctuary and talk about how God, Jesus Christ, is more than sanctuary, more than sacrifice, more than the blood sacrifices. But the whole deal, what it's talking about, he became everything like us so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest for us before God the Father, that he might represent us in the purest form, which is like, an angel couldn't do that. 
And without Jesus Christ having that humanity, God could not do that. And that's where it goes back to and just blowing our minds and seeing that he had to do that so that he could fully understand man. Because God knows all. But to walk in that shoes is to really understand. And it's not taking anything away from God and saying that. I think it gives more to him in saying, look at how loving he is that he fully wanted to understand what it is to walk in our shoes and to remain perfect. So that, and later on you guys can see in verse 15 of chapter 4, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's powerful. We're going before a God that understands us, knows us to the very T. And that's such an awesome thing that he presented because it is not some scary God that we have to go up before that doesn't relate at all, cannot understand, and is just sick of us or what we've done. He's merciful, guys. He knows what we have to go through each day. And I hope you guys are able to praise him because of that and get to see a little bit different and why Jesus Christ had to have, or why they had, he had to come in his humanity. And we'll talk more about it as we go through this, this part of Hebrews and other parts of Hebrews. Uh, it's a great book, and it just tears open and gets to see and open our eyes to who Jesus Christ is and using the Old Testament to give us insight in who he is and what God's done for us. So, Lord, we just thank you for tonight, and we thank you for what you have done for us. The love is just unbelievable, Lord. I, you know, it really it puts, it puts that uh, agape love, it, it brings a little bit more understanding on something that we could never attain. Lord, I praise you for it, and I thank you so much for what you've brought us into. Lord, that you became everything so that you could sympathize with us and what we go through and what we have to deal with, Lord. The awesome thing is that you've made a way of escape, so it's not just a hopeless life that we live, but you've given us a way that we can walk out of it. Lord, because you know how hard it is. You know the things that we face, and so you've given us a perfect way, Lord. I ask that you would help us to choose that way. Lord, as we come up against those choices that we have, that we would choose you, we would choose your way, we would choose your strength, Lord. I thank you so much for having mercy on us, Lord, when we don't choose it. That you go before us, Lord, and you, you put your blood on that mercy seat. I thank you so much, Lord. You're a good God to us. I pray that you just forgive us for not showing and not saying that enough to you, Lord. And we just want to love you more, Lord. Keep opening your word to us, that we'd be hearers of it, Lord, and we'd go out and do what you've asked us to. Lord, I just thank you for these guys here tonight, Lord. I just want to ask that you would just bless each one of their lives as they seek you, Lord, and as they walk. And if they walked away from you a little bit, Lord, I know you're right there, and just that's an awesome verse you give us, that you call us your brethren, we're your children. You're not ashamed of us, no matter what the enemy says, Lord. So I pray that you bring comfort to those that have bought into that lie, Lord, that you'd reestablish that you love them so much and you're not ashamed of them. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for your word. Amen.